Having finished the book of Nehemiah, we are migrating back to the Gospel of John. So my title for you this morning is Retelling the Gospel of John. Before we get back into our regular momentum of a sort of verse-by-verse and section-by-section study, we've been away from the Gospel of John so long, I want to retell you what we learned months and months ago. Seems like forever, doesn't it? I've had a headache since March. What about you? (laughs) But I'm excited to be back in the Gospel of John. I think it has so much in store for us, and I think it was blessing us as a church before this terrible pandemic affected each and every one of us. So this morning, we're going to do something a little unusual, and we're just going to jump around, and I'm going to share some points with you. A lot of notes are going to come up on the screen. I hope that I will sort of reinvigorate your interest and your momentum in regards to the Gospel of John, so that next week when we pick back up in John chapter 10, you will be ready and willing. You know, before I begin, let me begin by saying this. The Gospels are magnificent books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these books are the kinds of material that radically change your life because they introduce you to the one who changes you. There isn't anything necessarily particular about the church in which you study the Gospels or the room in which you study the Gospels. What is particular is the Jesus who is revealed in the Gospels. This is certainly what we began learning as we started plotting our way through John 1 and John 2 and John 3 and so forth so many months ago, slowly but surely advancing our way through the wonderful book of the Gospel of John. So we've learned a number of things, but retelling what we've learned is not only helpful for us personally and spiritually, I think it's also going to be helpful as we begin the study again in upcoming weeks. This morning, what I would like to do is retell three things in particular. How many? I want you to remember that we learned, one, who Jesus is. Two, what Jesus can do, and three, why Jesus came. Those are the three points that I have for you this morning, so let's begin with our first, which is this. We've learned who Jesus is. This is first and foremost. We've learned who Jesus is. This is undeniably the most important fact and truth of all because it really doesn't matter what Jesus can do. And it really doesn't matter why Jesus came if those two things are compromised by who he is. Amen? We all know bad people who on occasion can do something good. We all know good people who on occasion can do something bad. Right? Such is not the case with Jesus. I love what Hebrews 13.8 says. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have to base everything that we believe and everything that we hold dear to us on this one fact. Say amen if you're listening. It matters who Jesus is. If it didn't matter who Jesus was and is and will forever be, we wouldn't be here in a Christian church. We'd be somewhere else. Or nowhere at all. We learned who Jesus is. Church, Jesus isn't one of those people. 
who is good one minute and maybe makes a mistake, or who is bad all the time but every now and then has a good day. No, Jesus isn't one of those people. What we've learned about Jesus from the Gospel of John is so large, but we can probably get a good simplified glimpse from just what we would call the I am statements. It'd be hard to recap 10 chapters or nine and a half. So let me just share with you a few of the I am statements that we have been able to cover in the progress we've made. And I think these I am statements are going to remind us of who Jesus is. We've learned that Jesus himself identifies with God himself, and he does so by way of these I am statements. You remember how God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush? Whom shall I say sent me when they say, who sent you to deliver us? And God says, tell them I am sent you, right? The sufficient one, the one who can't be put into a box, the one who can't simply be described by a single singular name or singular description. So Jesus in the Gospel of John is known for seven I am statements. We're going to share a few of them together right now this morning. The first of which is this, John 6.35, excuse me, I'm going a little fast for my tongue. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, Jesus doesn't give the bread that leads to life. Jesus is the bread that leads to life. That bread that comes down from heaven, he said. And it was sort of foretold in the Exodus when God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt and then provided for them with bread from heaven they called manna. It sustained them for those 40 years, and Jesus identifies not only with having fed the 5,000 in that moment, but telling them something with which they would be very familiar, namely that their forefathers were fed with manna, bread from heaven. And he says, you remember that bread from heaven? They say, of course we remember that bread from heaven. And Jesus says, I am the bread. I am that bread. He doesn't give the bread. He doesn't direct you toward the bread. He says, I am the bread. Secondly, John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever walks with me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever walks with me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You know, we like to orient darkness against light and light against darkness, don't we? In all of our movies that we watch and some of the conversations that we have with people on the street, at Starbucks and restaurants, even our own family members, have a tendency to be swallowed whole by Eastern philosophies that lead us to believe that every yen has a yang and every yang has a yen. This is not so. We don't believe in a universe that has an evil power doing war with a good power and a good power doing war with an evil power. No, that's not what we believe. In philosophy, we refer to this as 
ontology, the philosophy of being, how do we know that something is? We have a tendency, you and I, and our culture most especially, to treat things as if they were equal, but they are not. Light and darkness are indeed not equal because they can't be. Light is a thing. Darkness is the absence of a thing. Let me say that again. Light is a thing. Darkness is not a thing. It is the absence of a thing, namely light. So we have a tendency to say, oh, I hope that good triumphs over evil or, or, or light triumphs over darkness. Let me reassure you. Say amen if you're listening. It will. It will. What we live in, you and I right now, we are reminded by Jesus' detention in which we are aware of God's goodness. We have, most of us who are Christians, at least, have experienced God's goodness and know that we have. But we're also keenly aware of cancer. We're also keenly aware of prejudice. We're also keenly aware of hate. We're also keenly aware of our own shortcomings internally. As Jesus says, what a person thinks in their heart reveals who they are. But we have this promise. Namely, that Jesus is the light of the world, and if we walk with him, we will not walk in darkness. We will walk in the light of life. But that's not all. John chapter 10, verse 7, we covered this way back whenever. I am the door, Jesus said. John chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door. You know what a door is. A door is the thing that you use to get somewhere, right? A door is the thing that you pass through in order to get where you want to go. Those of you got out of your cars this morning, you walked through a door to get into this church building. Two doors, in fact. You get out of the car going back home, and you will walk through your front door in order to get inside of your house. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. The truth of the matter is, is we don't simply migrate somehow to Christianity. We have to pass through the door. If we want to get into God's presence, if we want to have fellowship with God, then we've got to pass through the door. And who is the door? Jesus. We don't have 10 options here. We don't have five options here. We don't even have two options. If you want to get to God, there's only one door by which you must pass. And that door is Jesus. Some of us find this exasperating. It's too simple for our intelligent minds. Listen, God didn't make the gospel exclusive and simple to aggravate you, but so that you wouldn't have to be aggravated by all the works that you would have to do to merit salvation. If you want salvation, all you need to do is realize there is only one door, and that is Jesus. The last I am statement I'm going to share with you under our first point this morning is this. Jesus says, same chapter, chapter 10, he says in verses 11 and 14, I am the good shepherd. 
I am the good shepherd. In fact, this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that is found in the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34, in which God says, the shepherds of my people have fed themselves rather than the sheep. And when the sheep get lost, they don't go to find them and redeem them. And so God says through Ezekiel, thus says the Lord, I will shepherd my people. Years pass and Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I am the good shepherd. So to speak, I'm here. I'm here to be the fulfillment of the prophecy in which my father said, I will shepherd my people. But he doesn't just say, I'm the shepherd. He says, I'm the what shepherd? The good shepherd. Two words for good in Greek, mostly. Kalos, which is good in a moral sense, and agathos, which is good in the sense that it is beautiful. It is proper. It is seemly. In fact, that is the word that Jesus uses. We might have a tendency to think that Jesus was going to say, I am the morally upright shepherd. I am the ethically sound Shepherd. In fact, he doesn't use that word. He uses the other word. It is more like Jesus is saying that he's the good shepherd in the sense that he's the beautiful shepherd. He's the shepherd who is loved by his sheep. He's the shepherd that when his people see him, they go, have you ever seen a more beautiful shepherd than mine? My shepherd is good. I have a tendency to speak to people on this particular issue when they have a sort of knowledge of Christianity or a knowledge of church life or a knowledge of religion, but they don't think Jesus is beautiful. If you refer to yourself as a Christian and the most beautiful person in your universe is not Jesus, you need to think. You need to examine yourself, Paul says, and see whether or not you're in the faith. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. That's not my word. That's his word to Christians. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because if Jesus isn't the most beautiful person you have ever seen ever, I don't know, man. I don't know. A Christian that is not completely infatuated and in love with the beautiful Savior who is Jesus worries me. We should never find anything as beautiful as the shepherd God has placed over his church. Amen? Amen. Church, if we would be solid, healthy Christians, if we would be unified as a healthy church, if we would be a force to be reckoned with in our city and in our community and culture, we must know who Jesus is. It's not enough that we know things about him. It's not enough that we know people who know him. It's not enough that we ourselves walk closely to those who know him. No, we ourselves must strive to know him personally. We must strive to know him intimately as Savior and as King and as Lord. He's not just a teacher, although he teaches with perfect wisdom. He's not just a healer, although he heals definitively. Amen? Amen. He's not just a friend, although he's the most faithful friend that we ever could have. He's not just God's son, although he's fully divine, and he's not just a man, although he's fully human. 
He isn't some of those things. Jesus is all of those things. That's who Jesus is. Paul says in Colossians 3, Christ is all. That's what it means to be a Christian. That Jesus is everything. That we know who Jesus is. That's how John has launched his gospel. And that's what we've learned as we've gone through the first nine and a half chapters. We've learned who Jesus is. Particularly by way of Jesus teaching those I am statements. But secondly, we've also learned what Jesus can do. We've also learned what Jesus can do when it comes to the miracles that John records Jesus doing. He doesn't actually call them miracles. You may recall this from our studies before. He chooses instead to call them signs. And you know what signs do? Signs point you in the right direction, right? Signs tell you whether or not you're headed the right way. And we thank God for signs every time we get on the 874 or the turnpike because they're always flipping an exit or flipping a lane. And if it wasn't for the sign, we might head the wrong direction. Amen? Jesus doesn't do miracles, John says. Jesus does signs. In other words, the signs or miracles that Jesus does and performs point toward the fact that he is indeed who he says he is. I like what Leon Morris meant when he said, quote, he saw the miracles not simply as wonderful and inexplicable, but as meaningful In the literal sense of the term, they were significant. You know, the first part of the word significant is sign. In the literal sense of the word, they were significant. In what way? In that they, those events, pointed to what Jesus was saying and the God to whom he was leading us. In addition to the seven I am statements... There are seven signs in the Gospel of John. It's pretty easy to remember. For those of you who are going with us faithfully through the Gospel of John, seven I am statements, seven signs. I'm going to read them to you very quickly. In chapter 2 of John, the first sign is Jesus turning the water into wine. Jesus turns water into wine. That's John chapter 2. Second sign, in John chapter 4, he heals the royal official's son. Then in John chapter 5, he heals the paralyzed man outside the pool of Bethesda. You may recall this. Jesus approaches him and he asks him, do you want to be made well? Well, that'll preach, won't it? Well, if you make me well, I might have to get a job. Well, if you make me well, I might have to show some responsibility for myself. Well, if you make me well, then other people are, might start saying, you need, to, you need to take care of that. I'm not doing it anymore. 
I wonder how often Jesus comes to us and through the deafness of our own irresponsibility, we can't hear the question, do you want to be made well? It's not an issue of whether or not he can make us well. It's an issue of our willingness to walk with him in responsibility. The fourth sign is the feeding of the 5,000. This is John chapter 6. We already referred to this in John chapter 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever follows me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then later in John chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. And we don't believe, like the liberals teach, that there were some rocks neatly stationed in the water and Jesus was kind of like, hey guys, what are you doing? No, we believe he was walking on the water. We don't explain away the miracles with some sort of natural phenomenon because we make devoid the gospel of its power when we do that. We believe he walked on water. The sixth sign was the healing of the man who was born blind. That's John chapter 9. You may remember that. He sits in front of the Sanhedrin and they say, tell us what took place. And he says, I can't tell you what took place. All I can tell you is I once was blind and now I see. What a great testimony. I don't know what happened. All I can tell you is the man Jesus, the one you don't like, he touched my eyes. He told me to wash in the pool and I washed and now I can see. That's all I can tell you. And then the last seventh sign in the Gospel of John, these are the main signs during Jesus' ministry, of course, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's the seventh sign. That's in John chapter 11. Church, we have a Savior who can do mighty things. We have a Savior who can do great things. We don't have a Savior who gives us best wishes. We don't have a Savior who hands down to us some sort of moral code with a good luck. You're going to have to do it perfectly if you want to live in my house. That's not what we see transpire in the gospel and in the ministry of Jesus. We see Jesus do great things. Jesus works miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. He works them for the glory of God and the good of God's people. The healing of the man who was born blind is a great example of this. Lord, who sinned that he was born blind? His parents or him? And Jesus' answer to that should rock all of our worlds. He said neither. He was born blind according to the plan of God so that you could see the glory of God and the healing Don't believe me? Go back and read it. God put that blind man there in that day at that moment according to his providential plan so that his son could show the majesty of his ability to the glory of the Father. And we know that. We know that because it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that the Trinity was present during creation. God created the heavens and the earth and was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness. And then it says in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, let us make man in our own image. This is what we call inter-Trinitarian talk. This is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having a conversation with themselves. They're not consulting with anybody. There are no consulting firms for the Trinity. 
The Trinity only consults with itself. It is completely sufficient. Does it need you? Does it need me? The Trinity is in a blissful, loving relationship with itself. So when it happens, let us make man in our own image, according to our own likeness, we get a little sort of replay of what that transpired as in chapter 2 of Genesis. And it says, man, God made man from the what of the ground? From the dust of the ground. And Jesus shows up in John chapter 9, and they say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he says, no, 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 this This was part of God's providence and plan so that you could see that I am indeed who I say I am. And what did Jesus pick up from the ground as the creator of the world? Dust. And he created sight in a man who had never seen, which was not hard for him to do because he had already done it in the beginning. God isn't detached from our world or our lives. God isn't removed, he isn't disinterested, and he isn't loveless. When he works in our world, when he does something miraculous, performs a sign, we call that providence. That's God working behind the scenes. But too often, we want God to do things in our lives that only he can do, We're willing to be healed. We're willing to be helped. But we're not always willing to give him the glory. This was done so that God might be what? Glorified. Oh, we're not making much of conventions and denominations and particular translations of the Bible and so on and so forth. We're making much of whom? God. All things we do, Paul says, we do to the glory of God. Whatever it is that you do, whether you eat or drink or anything that you do, do it to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 31. Paul is saying, I don't care what you do, how mundane, how simple, it doesn't matter the task, whether it's great or small, important or insignificant, it needs to be done to the glory of God. Are we willing? To do it to the glory of God. Are you willing to be healed to the glory of God? Are you willing to put your broken marriage at the cross and say, I can't fix this. I tried. I can't do it. If you fix my marriage, I'll give you glory. Are you willing to take your health and say, God, I'm not going to self-medicate. I'm not going to trust in the doctors beyond the fact that you've given humankind wisdom and technology. However you choose to heal me, I promise to give you glory. Are we going to place our salvation there? And are we going to say, God, this salvation of mine is all a work of yours? Or are we going to say, no, 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 I think I've got this figured out better than you do. One of the first Baptist confessions ever written, 1689, the London Confession, puts it this way in chapter 5. God governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. And then it continues... The providence of God in a general way includes 
all creatures. But in a special way, it takes care of his church and arranges all things to its good. When God in his providence works in our lives to bless us, to heal us, to guide us. It is something we must give him glory for. And we shall not share glory with God. That's what he says. That's what he says in Isaiah 53. Beside me there is no other and I will give my glory to no one. That's God's word. And we want to split it and parse it and say, but what about this or what about that? No. If God is not first and foremost, the theology is wrong. If God is not beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, then the theology is wrong. If we simply can't give him glory for all that he has done and promised to do, the problem, I can assure you, is not with him. It's with us. We've learned who he is. We've learned what he can do. And that he does those things for the glory of God. Thirdly, we learned why Jesus came. Why he does what he does. Let's observe that fact that we need to learn, again, be reminded of why Jesus came. We call the coming of Jesus his incarnation. It's a Latin compound word. It means to be in flesh, incarnate, in the flesh. And this is pulled directly from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, that is Jesus, took on flesh and dwelt among us. Throughout all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus repeatedly gives his mission statement. In other words, the reason for which he was incarnate. The reason why he came. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we see a repetition of the word sent being used by Jesus. You might want to write some of these down. He says things like in John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Did you get that first part? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, what's the purpose statement then? That through him the world might be saved. That's John 3, 17. How about John 5, verse 30? I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who, guess, sent me. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 7, verse 29. I know him because I come from him because he... He sent me. All told... Say amen if you're listening. You might want to write this down. All told, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that the Father sent him 41 times. Get it in your brain. 
he didn't trip out of heaven and fall down and say, while I'm here, I might as well help somebody. Jesus came with a mission. And the mission was to bring glory to his Father who sent him by providing the salvation that his Father authored. In the Gospel of John, we find a few statements that qualify. Help us with this. And paint the clear picture. You might want to write down some of these verses as well. Chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus came to bring grace and truth. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17. Chapters Uh, Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Jesus came to provide salvation for everyone who believes. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes would have eternal life, right? Not perish, but have eternal life. Who gets salvation? Whoever believes. Because God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. How about chapter 5, verse 21? It says that Jesus came to do his Father's work. Jesus came to do his Father's work. Or chapter 5, verse 37. Jesus came, I love this, to give security to his Father's people. Jesus came to give security to his Father's people. Say that one more time. Jesus did not accomplish salvation so that you can wonder whether or not you're saved if you've placed your faith in Christ. Part of the work of Christ is to give his Father's people what we call security. Now, if you believe that your salvation started with you, then you better believe it's going to finish with you. But if you believe that your salvation is a work of God from start to finish, then what are you worried about? I love what Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says. I am convinced of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in me is able to complete it until the day of Christ. Psalm 138, verse 8, God will perfect that which concerns me. Some of us get saved and then we run around like having begun in the spirit, will we be made perfect by the flesh? That's Galatians 3. No! We have security in our salvation, not because of our faith, but because our faith is placed in a completed work on our behalf. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who, guess what, sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I would lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. You see that? That this is God's will, that I lose nothing that the Father has given me, so that I can raise it up on the last day, church. You are secure because Jesus is going to be faithful to his Father. 
And Jesus is faithful to his father because his father has given all Christians to him. And in that promise is a return from Jesus to the father, which says this, father, I will not let one fall. So that at the end of time, in the last day, I can raise them up. Church, your security is not in anything you ever have done or ever will do. You are saved by the grace of God from start to finish. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is a gift of God. If you're a Christian today, your salvation is a gift And you are a gift from the Father to the Son. And the Son has promised his Father that he will not lose you. That's why he came. Jesus was sent to do his Father's will, and part of his Father's will was to keep until the end all that the Father had given him. Jesus will not lose us. Not because we're faithful, but because Jesus is faithful. Jesus will not lose us. Not because of what we've contributed to salvation, but because Jesus accomplished our salvation in total on the cross. Jesus will not lose us because for Jesus to lose us, he would first have to change who he is. And that will never, ever, ever happen you see again why jesus came and what jesus has done rests squarely on who jesus is and jesus is not unfaithful to his father so while there are a few angles to these mission statements a variety of colors if you will The gist of all of them is the same. I have come to do my Father's will, which is to keep until eternity all that he has given me. Namely, all those who place their faith in Christ.